Good morning, Lakeshore City Church. So blessed to be with you and to be able to preach the word. Um, man, these are challenging times at best. And what I thought just God impressing on my heart is to, to, to really preach on unity uh, during these divisive uh, times or these polarizing times. And uh, man, if you were to ask me in 2019 what 2020 was going to look like, I can tell you with absolute certainty that I am 100% wrong. And probably wrong doesn't describe it. If there was another word to describe wrong and more than wrong, that probably would be more appropriate of a word um, in my failure to predicting 2020. I mean, the times that we are living in now are so uncertain at best. But what I am certain of is this that there is an overwhelming sense of division and divisiveness that we are witnessing at this time, certainly in our society, but we're starting to see it creep into the church. This is way beyond the usual arguments that we've, we've had in the recent past. These are core deep-seated issues that have drawn very clear lines where the possibilities of reaching a reasonable and healthy compromise have ceased to exist. And the entrenchment is the name of the game. And it's not an entrenchment that carries with it some level of civility, but one that carries with it fear, frustration, resentment, anger, and rage. You see, people at an impasse are no longer allowed to agree to disagree. Now those in opposition have invoked an irrevocable license to demonize with a strong desire to demolish. And what popular issue these days haven't been plagued by this dangerous approach. Whether it's political issues on a national, state, or local level, whether it's the implementation of, of health requirements as a result of COVID and its impact on, on liberties and freedoms, if it's the impact on businesses and jobs, the issue of racism and law enforcement, and the list doesn't stop, as you know. And as a result, it's caused fear panic and chaos. Not only for our society as a whole, but I'm starting to see where this dangerous approach and its results are starting to infiltrate the homes of Christians in this church and across the nation. Somehow we've left the back door open enough where division and divisiveness has been allowed to creep in. I found this true to be in my own home and in others in our churches, the focus of our conversation has become more political in nature, where the headlines of the day are drawing out those fears and frustrations that I spoke about earlier, where, we, where resentment starts to well up and overflow in how we see and speak of others. I'm starting to see people framing up their faith within their political views and becoming more vocal about their politics than their faith. I'm starting to see where people are more motivated by their identity as an American than their identity as a Christian. And as we go down that slippery slope, it becomes so much easier to distance, dismiss, and devalue those who don't share our same views and opinions. And please hear me, church. When we start to distance, dismiss, and devalue others, the back door to our church opens wide up and division and divisiveness walk straight in. It kind of reminds me of these old jokes. It's like, well, know that we reached heaven because conservatives will have finally have the majority. But the joke could go completely the opposite way depending on your viewpoint. Galatians 3.28 says, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, 
since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, when people read Galatians 3.28, they automatically assume that this is only in reference to race or gender. But please know that the differences between Jews and Greeks went way beyond race. It also included their opinions on politics, economy, and the list goes on and on. So how are we, how do we as Christians combat division and divisiveness? If you will, please open your Bibles to Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. It says, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. That is the first step that we can take towards combating division and divisiveness. You see, to walk worthy of the calling we have received and is a sermon of itself. But there is an aspect of that calling in which I want to hype for, uh, highlight for us this morning. It's found in Colossians 3, 1 through 2. So if you have been raised with Christ, if you are a Christ follower, a Christian, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. You see, to walk in worthy manner of the calling we have received, we must walk with the right perspective. As it says to set our minds on the things above, not on earthly things. Right now, I think this is an area where we are failing as Christians. We have gotten so wrapped up in what's happening around us that we have lost sight on the things of above. Somehow our citizenship as Americans has superseded the importance of our citizenship in heaven. And if that's not true, then why is it dominating our thoughts, our conversations, our posts on social media platforms? Don't get me wrong, I am so thankful that I live in this great country we call America. It's an incredible blessing that comes with great sacrifice at the hands of many brave men and women. But being American is not the most important part of my identity. God has called us to be citizens of heaven and our identity is to be in Christ and Christ alone. But the calling doesn't stop there. Not only are we to be citizens of heaven, we are to be soldiers of the King of Kings. 2 Timothy 2, 3-4 says this, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one whom enlisted him. You see, as soldiers of the Lord, our aim is to please God, to put away the distractions of this world and to pursue him, his holiness, his righteousness, and his purposes. You'll notice in Ephesians that Paul uses the word worthy. We must walk in a manner worthy of the calling of salvation. You see, the Apostle Paul is pleading with us that our daily conduct as a professing believer in Christ would be equal to the calling of salvation. You see, if this is the calling of our salvation and we place it on this end of the scale, then our walk, our daily conduct must be equal in weight so that one is worthy of the other. 
Here's a quick question for you to help us identify maybe any discrepancies between the two. Something that you can be thinking about through the week. Does our behavior, our conduct, match our beliefs? Does our behavior match our beliefs? You see, when we walk in a manner worthy of our calling, there is no place for division or divisiveness because our focus is elevated on the things of above and our eyes are fixed on him. But it doesn't stop there. Let's continue in Ephesians 4, 2 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. You see, we should note that our walk is twofold. We are to walk in holiness, the sanctified life, but we are also to walk in unity. We see this theme of unity peppered throughout this chapter. You can see it as we move beyond verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We see it down in verse 13, until we all attain the, to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. We see it further down in verse 16, where it talks about how we are joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, unity has always been God's primary objective in his plan of salvation. It's always been a part of the calling in which we've been called to be unified with God and to be unified with other believers. But when we sin, when we get entangled in civilian pursuits, when we allow lesser important matters to cloud the most important things such as pursuing God's purposes and his holiness, it's impossible to live a life of unity because it's sin that separates us from God and it's sin that separates us from others. You see, anytime we elevate the things of this world above the things of heaven, we sin. Dr. Lloyd-Jones is right when he says, sin is a disruptive force. Sin always divides, it always separates, it splinters. It divides a man within against himself. It has produced the constant fight and struggle which we are all aware in our lives. Sin also produces division between man and man. It leads to enmity and war and strife. The world has been shattered by sin. And because it's sin that separates us from God and others, Paul gives us basically four essential ingredients, if you will, to fulfill a walk marked by holiness and unity. You'll notice from the list found here in Ephesians 4.23 that Paul starts with humility. And it's not surprising, nor is it by accident. Paul knows it's impossible to have unity without humility. It's the bedrock, the foundation in which the other attributes are built upon. Paul also recognizes that humility, the greatest Christian virtue of all time, is required to, to defeat the greatest temptation of all time, which we face every day. 
It's called pride. Pride is Satan's greatest tool to inflict destruction on this earth and in our lives. And ironically, it's the very sin that destroyed him. You see, pride was the original sin. And all other, sin, all other sins take root and stem from it. That's why God through, throughout his word continuously warns us of pride. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humble wisdom. Proverbs 16, 18 through 19, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James 4, 6, therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And these are just a few of many warnings about pride in the Bible. This pride that leads us to destruction and how incredibly Hard is it to avoid pride. It radiates from the core of our depraved and fallen nature. Pride permeates our thoughts, our words, and our speech. Pride is everywhere at all times. Why? Because Satan doesn't waste his time tempting us with less effective means. If pride is the least path of resistance for our destruction, then pride becomes Satan's weapon of choice. It's no wonder that the world, his world, the world that he has dominion over perpetuates pride. And pride comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. We are constantly tempted to be proud of our accomplishments, our abilities, our appearance, our education, our profession, our possessions, our social status, our political identity, and the list goes on. It's the look at what I have, look at what I know, look at what I've said, look who I'm with. Look where we are. Look what I've accomplished. Look, look, look. You see, we're an award show and a parade waiting for an opportunity. Pride not only propels us to pursue paths of man-made joy that dead ends in destruction, but pride also becomes a mask that inhibits us from seeing ourselves as we truly are. Oh, how we believe in our own press getting so wrapped up in our own spin. Pride is so toxic because even as you sit in the midst of destruction, pride gives you a false sense of who you are, which leads you further into destruction. You see, pride tries to hide what only the light of humility can expose, and it's for that very reason I pray this morning we see it for what it truly is. So what are we to do? What is the treatment that eradicates this disease? The answer is humility, and we see it here in Ephesians 4.2. The word humility here means lowliness of mind. Someone defined it as the loneliness of mind which springs from a true estimate of ourselves, a deep sense of our own moral smallness and demerit. The greatest example in scripture is found in Philippians 2, 3 through 8. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more insignificant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Christ provided the perfect and ultimate example of what it means to be humble. You know, it's really hard for division, divisiveness to enter into our church when we count others more significant than ourselves. And I would pose a larger question, how many societal problems would this solve if we could just implement the idea of humility? And now we transition from humility to gentleness. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, and it's a true sign of humility. The word here is defined as self-control, and it's specifically strength under control. It would have been the word that would, was used to describe a tamed lion or a broken horse. Both animals have incredible power and strength, but their will is still under the, the control of their master. And in context of our scripture today, gentleness in the life of believers, power given by God for the purposes of God and under the control of God. You know, gentleness is easy to spot in others when you see it because these people are never asserting themselves. They're not self-defensive or vindictive. But those who don't possess humility and therefore don't possess gentle, gentleness are frustrated and desire to impose their will and their way on you and everyone else. They want their ideas to be your ideas, their opinions to be your opinions, their politics to be your politics. And as soon as they are not complying, they become angry. But what is the lesson there? The lesson is we should be less concerned with what other people think and more concerned with what God Things, taking less time promoting our own opinions and more time expressing God's opinions. You see, Jesus embodied gentleness on earth and pointed back to the words of his Father, and we must do the same. And now we move from gentleness into patience. Patience is the idea of long-tempered or long-suffering. It means to remain steady and faithful under God's guidance no matter the circumstances. We see this throughout the history of the Bible. Just take Noah as an example. Most people don't realize, but it took Noah 120 years to build the ark. 120 years. Can you imagine? Can you imagine gathering your family, telling them that you've had a vision from God, and that God has required you to build a boat. Now this is out in the middle of the desert, to build a boat because there's going to be a flood. Can you imagine the ridicule, the ridicule that they would have received by others during this time as they sleep in their tents night after night, as, as Noah's looking over to his wife and thinking, really, did I get this right? Am I sure? I mean, here we are in the midst of the desert. There's no rain, there's no flood, and this is taking us years to accomplish. But that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's long-suffering. It's patience. It's sitting under the authority and the purposes of God. Now, contrast that with what Aristotle said about the greatest Greek virtue, which was a refusal to tolerate any insult with a readiness to strike back. 
Does that sound familiar? It appears that people have little patience in their circumstances and almost no patience with one another. But regardless of what people are doing around us, God has called us to be patient, to endure what's necessary in order to live out our lives worthy of the calling in which we have been called. We are to be patient in every circumstance and with every person that crosses our path. Think about COVID-19. This has been a pressing issue for all of us. But this was not a surprise to our sovereign God. He knew this was going to happen and he knew when it was going to happen, how it was going to happen, and he knows when it's going to be resolved. And I noticed that, that a lot of our... A lot of our time and attention has been focused on just how do we get out of this mess? How do we get out of this mess? How do we resolve it? But, but how many of us have stepped back and asked the question, what does God want me to learn right now in the midst of COVID? What does he want me to learn? What does he want us as a church to learn? Could it be that he wants to, to prepare us for a persecution to come. I don't know what the answer is, but I know that God has a purpose in COVID, and so we need to sit under that in every circumstances with all patience. Proverbs 19.11 says this, a person's insight gives him patience, and his virtue is to overlook an offense. Let me repeat that. A person's insight gives him patience, and his virtue is to overlook an offense. We are such fragile people. And it's amazing just the, the little amount of, of agitation that comes our way where we need to react. We need to protect ourselves. We need to say something. We need to come to our own defense. But what does it say? It says a person's insight gives him patience and his virtue is to look, overlook an offense. You see, we, when we can be both patient in our circumstances and with those around us, we perpetuate unity. We perpetuate unity. But last, but certainly not least, is bearing one another in love. Bearing one another in love. When we bear one another in love, it combats division and divisiveness. You see, Paul, uh, Paul excuse me, is speaking of none other than agape love, a love that is continuous and it is unconditional. You see, unfortunately, a world full of pride, absent of humility, absent of patience and gentleness is a world that runs on conditional love. I'll love you as long as you love me. I'll love you as long as you agree with me. I'll love you as long as you make it easy for me. But if you don't, you automatically become my enemy. But what example has Christ set for us? Romans 5.8, But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were his enemy, Christ died for us. You see, Christ calls all of us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And maybe the person that we're actually struggling with isn't an outright enemy, but, but maybe it's someone we just don't agree with at church. But then what? We find it here in 1 Peter 4.8. It says, above all, above all, maintain constant love for one another. Above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. 
Or how about Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all offenses. You see, if you truly love someone as Christ has called us to love one another, then there is no room for division or divisiveness. You see, church family is mentioned before. These are incredibly divisive times, and Satan would love nothing more than to allow that to take hold in our church, to cause division and disunity amongst believers. But let's commit to stopping that by making sure that we walk in a worthy manner of the calling we've received by focusing on Christ and the things of above. As we live out a sanctified life identified by our humility, gentleness, patience, and love for one another. You see, when we do that, Satan's schemes are snuffed out and there is no place where division and divisiveness to live in our church. Amen. Let me pray. God, I am so thankful for your word, your truth, your guidance. It's such a gift, Lord. We're so thankful for Jesus who died on the cross for us, that our sins might be forgiven, God, that when we fail in pride and when we fail in humility and when we fail in gentleness and patience and love, Lord, there you are to help pick us back up, to put us back on the right path, Lord. God, we, we love you. We love this church. And we just ask that your continued protection over it, God, that we would be unified as a body of believers, that we'd be fulfilling your purpose for us on this planet. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.